How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Hello, everyone, and welcome to How I Got Here, Mozio and FocusWire's weekly podcast about the innovators in travel, transportation, and hospitality. Today, we're joined by Alex Cruz. Alex is the former chairman and chief executive officer of British Airways, the former CEO of Whaling, and before that, the founding CEO of ClickAir, the low-cost airline. Thanks for joining us today, Alex. Hi there. Good evening. So we like to start every one of these the same way as you know. We like to ask you how you got here. Well, thank you. Um, Well, how I got here is uh, really a succession of uh, uh, times and periods of of, uh, of events, uh, set of events, uh, um, center around a number of people just betting on me uh, uh, somehow. Uh, I, I imagine that starts with your parents at some point. Uh, they, they probably more than bet on you and it moves on. But uh, after university, um, when I got my first job with, with American Airlines, it, it was a, a bet that was made uh, by a guy called David Foster, still a friend uh, uh, who took me under his wing in, in Dallas. And uh, we, 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 we developed a, a small piece of business uh, from there on working for, for American Airlines. After 10 years in, in that world, I um, had the opportunity to join Arthur DeLittle. And, and again, it was the bed of a guy called David Gilbo, who still is a person that I speak with uh, quite uh, uh, frequently. He was a partner at Arthur DeLittle and, and uh, so that maybe I could help out. And when I went into Accenture, another guy, uh, when I was doing projects for uh, Navitair in Minneapolis, it was John Dalkowski that uh, supported me a tremendous uh, amount. Uh, uh, th- there's a succession of people all along, um, uh, ClickAir, Vueling, uh, British Airways. And to me, it's been um, a succession of bets that a number of people have made. And um, hopefully they have had a, a return on, on, on those bets. Um, and that's how I got here is it's luck and developing relationships and trying to do the best that, that I can, but also through uh, these relationships with people that have bet on me. I think that, that would be the, the essence of how I got here. I think that's probably the most humble answer we've ever gotten. Uh, <laughs> but um, why don't we go a little uh, deeper into kind of like, you know, your start at ClickAir, how it, you know, eventually merged in with Whaling and how you ended up at, uh, at British Airways. What, a, what, what an amazing uh, adventure. Um, it, I heard, I was a partner in Accenture, and I heard uh, these rumors that uh, there was a new startup in, in Spain and uh, that it was linked uh, somehow to Iberia. And there were some shareholders that were rumored. And I remember getting in touch with the uh, uh, travel partner in, in, in Madrid, uh, Manuel Chaude, and he began to uh, set up meetings with the rumored um, um, co-shareholders. And I went down and I met with them because I thought at that time how to start an airline because, you know, I was a consultant at work for American Airlines for many years and I thought I knew all of it. And I also thought that I knew what it meant to start an airline within an airline. And that had, I had spent quite a bit of time looking at places like Snowflake and TED and Freedom Air. And remember all these airlines that no longer exist? They used to be airlines within an airline. And I thought that I knew what the attributes that were required. Well, it turned out that the, that the, the rumors were true. And at some point, um, uh, there was a, an actual board of the startup, and it was made of this big, high-profile people representing five shareholders. And uh, we went to make presentations to them. 
eventually, after a number of presentations, I began to ask him, hey, uh, you know, I don't have to meet the board. We're going to tell you about what we can do. Uh, can I meet with your CEO or your CFO with, with somebody? And of course, they didn't have a team at that time. So I remember that over a period of one, two days, uh, I made a proposal uh, to them to start the airline for them. That was in May of 2006. And I said, look, we'll start it up. Uh, you have this unreasonable expectation that will start flying on, on the October 1st. We'll give it our best and I'll give it back to you in November. Uh, how about that? Uh, and I remember that uh, one of the shareholder group was a private equity uh, uh, team. And these two guys talked to the others and said, look, if we stand a chance of having this airline up and, and, and flying, we need to do this. They came back and they said, yes, bring us a project plan. So we did a project plan overnight. Uh, um, and uh, we presented it and they took us in. So we started the, 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 the uh, process of starting an airline, identifying uh, the team. One of the first uh, uh, hires in that team was a guy called Luis Gallego, who used to be the director of maintenance at Ernostrum in Valencia. Today, he's the chief exec of IAG. Uh, so he's also evolved uh, significantly through that career. We got to spend a lot of time together uh, selecting the first few pilots, which we call the uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's how we refer to the first four pilots at that time. Uh, cabin crew, it was amazing. Um, Midsummer, Madrid, uh, we were in this beautiful uh, uh, skyscraper in uh, downtown Madrid. Uh, uh, everyone was on vacation because it's August, so there's no one around except a huge line of cabin crew applicants that we are, were being interviewed in the Accenture offices. Um, what is going on here? Anyways, September 1st, we started selling. Clickair.com website was up and it was running. Uh, we didn't have time to do a marketing campaign. So we thought that the best way to do marketing was to set all the, all the uh, tickets at uh, five euros. Uh, you can still find the advertising on the internet uh, somewhere you Google them. Uh, and uh, on October 1st at uh, 6.05 in the morning, after not sleeping all night, uh, the first flight uh, took off uh, from Barcelona uh, airport. And uh, that's how that adventure uh, started. A commitment of 120 million by uh, euros by uh, all these shareholders. And we just kept going. Uh, we began to fly to more places um, and uh, we were not making money. Uh, price of fuel started to go up. Remember 2008, $148 a barrel. Uh, that's how, how, how far it was going. And we were choking. I mean, it was, it was difficult. We're having to go back to shareholders and say, look, I, you, know, you committed to 120, we're gonna use them. Uh, it's, 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 it's quite hard, even though we're super, super efficient. And then um, uh, eventually we got together with Welling. Uh, Welling was already listed in the stock market. Uh, they were having also trouble because it was a very tough competitive space. Um, and we got together in January 2009. Uh, the EU gave us approval to um, work together on, on uh, flight schedules and pricing. And in June of 2009, we completed. Um, I stayed as uh, a CEO and uh, we started a, a new journey, uh, a new journey out of which I left in 2016 uh, and made it to just over 100 aircraft and uh, with lots of stories in, in, in the middle. But uh, a fast, fantastic, really, really fantastic journey from that early meeting in May of 2005 until uh, the goodbye party in, in 2016. Uh, thanks ever so much for joining us, Alex. Really appreciate it. Um, what did you learn when you were in that early phase of creating uh, Click Air from the time that you were at a legacy carrier like American Airlines? There must have been lots of things that you 
wanted to replicate and i would imagine many many things that you didn't want to replicate obviously the models are very different but it is still running an airline so what did you what did you learn you know it was so 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 different that uh, at no point in clicker was i um tempted to replicate practices um of of traditional airlines you you, you almost knew that whatever reference point you had from before uh, it wasn't valid so yeah. just about everything we did we just run it through a completely different set of uh, criteria does this make sense or not uh, and ultimately as you can imagine the number one criteria at that time by far with a huge difference is is it going to increase our cost or not is it sufficiently flexible uh, will it increase uh, my fixed cost base will it help me to re- to uh, make my my costs more variable uh, that that that's what was going through our heads at, at all times so you know, we we there's so many stories about what was going on at, at at that time and how we would be looking after making sure that we we had the most efficient operation from every single angle that we we, we could look at. So I think that the influence of uh, the traditional industry, the tr- traditional airline industry, um, came later as we began to go slightly more upmarket. We were flying to main airports particularly as we went into Welling, we're flying to Paris, both Charles de Gaulle and Orly, eventually we went to Heathrow, uh, uh, Amsterdam, Schiphol, you know, these this are main big airports. And we thought that we needed to see what is it that traditional airlines were delivering in terms of um, premium product that we could adopt in Welling without incurring the cost. Which right. is, which obviously the question is, yeah, right, that, you know, that sounds great, but how can you do that? Well, we did. We did a bunch of stuff. And at the beginning, we, we did um, uh, uh, things that today are completely mainstream, like flexible fares. And uh, we began to connect passengers via um, uh, um, uh, Barcelona because we had such a huge network of, of destinations and many destinations, multiple uh, frequencies a day, um, that we began to do a few things. We did a few interlines. We, we did a couple of code shares, but we did it our own way. And we did it always, 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 so long as we could do them without increasing our cost. We even, we had a period of time where we were uh, delivering hot towels uh, to the first row and in Welling. And we had free food. You can choose anything you wanted from the menu for the first row. We wanted to create a, a, a slightly more premium uh, experience, of course, priced accordingly uh, for that uh, uh, first row. So we were experimenting continuously. Uh, so the, the, the question is, I, I think we kept quite pure uh, to start with, that was the, yeah. the, 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 the really the purpose. We had a fantastic ex-fuel uh, uh, unit cost uh, uh, structure. Um, I think that as time was by, went by, we began to look outside to see what is it that we could give to our premium travelers and begin to see what is it that we could do. Yeah. You had a number of peers, certainly in the European aviation sector that had been around for a few years before you the two most obvious being Ryanair and EasyJet what did you observe the way they had been created in the mid 90s and into that rapid growth phase of the 2000s that you thought you know that's just genius maybe we should take that or was there nothing that was genius like that Stelios and uh, Michael were doing at the time so uh, a few stories, so maybe a couple of funnies and then maybe a couple of serious ones. It was incredibly uh, revealing to see an article in an Irish newspaper uh, um, when we were in Welling. It turns out that an Irish uh, reporter had gone into Ryanair's offices and had interviewed uh, some of the people there. 
but he also took some pictures. And online, uh, one of the pictures uh, had in the background a whiteboard in which they had mapped out the passenger uh, experience. And they had three rows. Number one was Ryanair, number two was Welling, and number three was British Airways. And they, they mapped them out to, to look at differences and to see what was there. And I remember that we blew up this image and we were like, oh my God, these guys really are tracking us. And there was like a huge stamp of approval that we got because we knew, we knew the lowest, lowest cost always wins. And we were really, really, really convinced and we were very much acting uh, by that uh, premise. So I remember how uh, we paid attention to many of the practices that others were doing, but we carefully measured them to see if they made sense and if they really delivered uh, a benefit to us. Something serious I, I could share with you, and I guess uh, you know nowadays I would suspect that everybody does it. Um, at that time, we, we used to religiously uh, estimate the profitability of every flight that Ryanair and EasyJet uh, and at that time Norwegian flew. Uh, we did this by a combination of public data, uh, their financial results, and some assumptions that we made. We made a methodology in such a way that it didn't really change. So we were able to see what, were the, what the variations in profitability were um, uh, uh, for each route. And it was fascinating. It helped us tremendously at the time of deciding how to compete with both EasyJet and Ryanair. With EasyJet, it was easier. They were closer to us and to our model, and uh, we were able to do certain things uh, to compete very effectively. With Ryanair, it was more difficult. They had a much bigger network, and frankly, they didn't really care. Uh, I don't think they really paid much attention on a day-to-day -day basis to how we price flights. Uh, they just saw, you know, there's more capacity there. It makes no difference. We're, uh, you know, 60% of, of their cost base. Uh, we're just going to keep going. So we had a lot of moments that, that were uh, uh, tough and some of those that were incredibly uh, satisfactory. But I think we borrowed from each. One of the things that we did, and uh, I know that uh, my, my, my colleagues from that time will remember it with, with fondness, is we went to visit friendly airlines, airlines around the world. Some of them, had, we had nothing in common with them. Uh, some of them, we kind of were quite puzzled. We went to Sharjah and met with Adel Ali and, and, and Air Arabia, and we spent a, a day and a half there talking to them. It was fascinating to see um, how there were an ultra low cost environment surrounded by uh, Etihad and, and, and Emirates and what they were doing there. Uh, we went to Jet Airways out of a, a relationship that we have with them, completely different environment. We, that was quite therapeutic to us. Uh, but we also went to see Norwegian when Norwegian was not a competitor to us at all. Uh, this was early days. And we spent uh, a time with Born Kios and, and his team there. And, and we really, really enjoyed uh, uh, the visit there. So one of the things that we wanted to do was um, within reason and you know, where it makes sense, there is no competitive uh, issues, to exchange ideas and to, and to learn from others. We did that online, but we also did it face-to-face. -face, and it was quite a satisfactory experience. Uh, last year on How I Got Here, we interviewed uh, Ben Baldanza of Spirit Airlines. And he, you know, he talked quite fondly about how, you know, they really enjoyed being considered like trailblazers and doing things that were kind of out of the normal, even against some of their low cost competitors in North America, like Southwest and JetBlue and uh, airlines like that. Did you have the same kind of fearless kind of um, culture within the organization once you'd, once you'd established yourself? 
I am one of those that believes that uh, culture has a strategy for breakfast uh, every day. Uh, I, I very much believe, believe on it. Look, Welling was a place um, that didn't necessarily pay the most, but it carried a premium of culture. Uh, consecutively, a number of years, we were the highest engagement company in Spain, uh, uh, survey after survey. We had created a, a work environment that was that really wouldn't take no for an answer, that was growing and growing profitably, that would look at every single um, challenge that came our way, and we would tackle it. You know, I remember that our, our CFOs uh, in the darkest moments, whenever something went really, really, really bad, Sonia, our CFO, would say. Um, Okay, that's fine. We'll deal with it and we'll move on. And it, she would uplift everyone's uh, spirit and we would move on. Or, uh, you know, when, when Luis would say, uh, we're not flying to Russia in the, in the wintertime. And then ultimately we found some ways to be able to, to, to do it. And, uh, you know, everyone there was uh, working to make a miracle, to prove to the world that this group of people, relatively young, mid-30s mostly, average age in the company was 28 most of the time, um, we actually were going to show to the world that we could become a multi-hub uh, airline in Europe, growing, uh, taking market share, not just from um, uh, traditional airlines, but from other locals carriers, addressing business and being able to do what the big boys were doing, but still maintaining a, a local space. Um, uh, you know, I remember there's a, a guy still in Welling, fantastic guy, Frank uh, Samarty, that uh, I said, look, we got to find a way to make the, the seats in the first row uh, um, more premium, and he found this headrest that was opulent. You, 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 it was quite super big. And he found a way to get it for free uh, on the airplanes, and, and I mean, it was amazing. Every every week, these guys were coming up with new rabbits out of our our, our welling uh, uh, hat, um, and he made it. It, it was the very uh, um, self fulfilling uh, uh, platform overall. You know, uh, uh, Jose de Rio, he was. Uh, one of the guys managing what we would call today financial uh, analytics and, and in charge of investor relations as well. And, and one day he said, you know, people, uh, when we do all these sales, a million seats for 10 euros or 20 euros or whatever, uh, people are not ready to make the decision within the two or three days that we give them. We should allow them to just, you know, lock a price when they go into the web and then, then come back and, and uh, once they locked it, actually pay, pay it off. And I remember... Uh, that we did that functionality in about 10 days and it paid itself uh, uh, in, in about two days. Uh, it was amazing. And we're the first airline in the world, by the way, they did it. Continental did it afterwards. Uh, and it was that spirit of we're going to do it. We have the right environment and people would work their asses off um, uh, to, to really beat that sense of uh, and try to beat everyone else. So yeah, the culture, you know, is the culture probably that many other startups have, have uh, in common. I think I'd love to delve into a little bit. You, you had some very interesting, you, you've, your career spanned the gamut between startup to low cost to probably one of the you know biggest institutional airline you know groups in the world, um, if not the biggest. Could you tell us kind of the difference between, you know, culture and operating uh, modus operandi, at, you know, kind of at each stage? Yeah, in a way, um, American Airlines for me, even though it was uh, quite a long time, it was an incredible MBA. Um, it was learning how a big big organization works. Is 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 going through the ranks uh, of that organization is understanding uh, 
the pressures and the uh, all the different elements that of the complexity of an airline because I was exposed to to so many different areas, um, and so it, it was a it was a huge learning experience, and I, I got to interact with so many airlines as well, uh, whilst I was in 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 American ultimately uh, Saver. I think the clicker welling experience was uh, very special because in a way. Uh, it carried a bit of my own culture of me, a little bit of Alex in in, in that process of and the kind of person I am. But uh, the 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 biggest uh, I wouldn't call it shock. Shock sometimes has a, a negative connotation, but the biggest change certainly was going into British Airways. Now I wasn't a stranger to to British Airways. I was living in Britain, even though it was commuting every week, and and uh, I had been at the table at IAG for three years, so I'd seen the numbers, I've seen a lot of the thinking, a lot of the. Uh, uh, investment cases, etc. Uh, but joining that organization and, and being in the leadership position together with a, a bunch of incredible uh, other professionals, it was a change. It was definitely a change. This this company uh, was not 10 years old, was about to become 100 years old. And uh, it had systems that were about half that age, uh, and it had uh, probably procedures of way of thinking that also were uh, quite... Uh, uh, experienced, uh, let's say, that change uh, was significant. And there, there was even more learnings, more learnings about how to work with people, how to uh, drive and create burning platforms where they weren't. You know, in Welling, we had to prove something. We had to prove that we could actually conquer the world. In BA, the world had been conquered a few times over. Uh, uh, and in British Airways, sorry, and 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 so in, in British Airways, the, the the challenge was slightly different. The, the 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 first challenge I felt was sharing with everybody where we were competitively. So I remember how uh, at the beginning we began to start sending several times a day emails with industry updates because the airline generates lots of news every single day. And I remember having these discussions with cabin crew at the airport that would say, you know. What? Why is it relevant that ANA just ordered this aircraft? You know what? How does this influence my life? And I would go through them and, and explain to them why it is relevant to understand uh, the tidbits of every uh, decision that all your competitors are doing around the world. Not at that moment, but as time goes by. And there are many other things like that that I try to bring in to the conversation to weave into the organization to introduce into internal procedures to try to create a sense that we not only have to respond to our shareholders uh, but also to our customers and, and obviously to our, our, our teams it was it was five years of uh, continuous work to try to raise uh, that kind of awareness um, I, I think probably in year four or so is when i began to realize that there was this was going to take many years probably a generation to do in a company like british airways uh, and rightly so. It's difficult. You can't change everybody, and it's very difficult to tell the story to everybody. But we make some significant inroads, um, uh, and we also collected some really good stories and points of reference that I'm sure the BA will use in the future. What did What did you find? Is so it's funny. It reminds me of I've had debates with people about how do you do innovation at a, a big entity like a like an airline, and sometimes people appoint a chief innovation officer, you know, and silo it away. Other people try to do, um, you know, innovation from the ground up, and you know. I feel like you 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 spend time trying to like you know kind of um, uh, adjust the the course of the you know this massive uh, you know <laughs> massive ship that it was really hard to steer. Um, what is your philosophy on innovation in really big organizations? 
so I, I, I won't, uh, uh, well, I, I will praise the efforts that um, uh, many organizations have done in order to introduce innovation uh, uh, into them. I, you know, even IAG's uh, Hangar 51 program has done a tremendous amount to, to develop the digital culture within the company. But um, allow me to over, possibly oversimplify it. Uh, the single biggest key to be innovative is to listen. Uh, if you listen to what people say, you will be innovative. And when you're in an organization that has more than two people, you have a platform to listen. And uh, you know most of the companies I work with have more than two people. Uh, so it turns out that uh, the programs that we put in place, one of the programs that I put in, in place in MBA with the help of a, a fantastic uh, coming crew leadership team uh, uh, headed by Karen Slinger um, was to uh, 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 have a collection uh, a system that would allow cabin crew to provide feedback, uh, not just on safety or on performance, no, on everyday stuff uh, uh, um, that may not be working because you introduce a new menu or introduce a new, uh, and we found out some things like curtains between uh, uh, two classes and 747s and all kinds of things that had gone uh, uh, in a way undetected because we hadn't been able to collect data. Um, is that innovation? Yeah. that on itself is innovative because you're making the airline better out of being able to aggregate really good feedback from people in, in a more organized way. But overall, one of the single sources of innovation is to actually sit down with people and listen. So we had a lot of groups, groups in engineering, uh, groups in customer, uh, groups with cabin crew, um, all throughout the organization that would actually speak and say, you know, this is what works, or my friend, my sister, my husband, my wife are trying this in their company, why don't we try it? I think that uh, companies that have, again, you know, uh, more than a few number of employees, they have enough people inside of the of their organizations that there is an unlimited number of ideas that will drive innovation uh, within the company. Of course, another challenge is to do them. <laughs> That's a completely different uh, uh, challenge. But to come up with those ideas and to actually uh, deliver a sense of ownership, because there is no better idea than the one that comes from within you. Uh, not that it was imposed on you. Uh, and I think that's that's what ultimately makes the difference. Uh, the, the difference is in Welling, that was a given. That's how it was. <laughs> that's how we did it. We didn't even have to think about it. MBA is something that we had to work at it. We had to create the right environment. Uh, people wanted to uh, believe that they were going to be heard, uh, for sure. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, you had to build trust in that respect. So completely different approaches um, and everything I just told you about listening, which I think is the number one factor, um, doesn't take away the fact that you can also do investments uh, uh, in innovation around uh, processes, companies, startups, et cetera, which also help a tremendous amount uh, uh, to, to drive uh, culture in the right direction. Oh, I love that. I um, A framework that I've often used to explain what it makes a good entrepreneur is a, you need two things. You need a good feedback loop and you need hustle. And I see a lot of people who have lots of hustle, but no feedback loop. They go hustle off in the wrong direction. A lot of people with a great feedback loop, but they don't have the hustle. And so they just, they, they, they know where they're wrong and they're just too lazy to do anything about it. And I feel like, you know, what you said about listening is basically a version of that feedback loop. You, you, you're going to get all of these, you know, there's plenty of inbound, you know, pieces of advice you can get. It's whether or not you choose to open your ears to, to really, you know, listen to them. Well, it has to be on 
it has to be in your DNA somehow. Um, and um, it's easy to fall prey of, why would I talk to the pilots again since I always hear the same thing? That's not true. On every single flight that I took on uh, Vueling, every single flight that I took, it was a lot of flights, I was in the cockpit on, on takeoff, on landing, and most of the flight. And uh, this was absolutely necessary for me to come in contact with the pilot community. In BA, I've done quite a few cockpit flights, but um, I didn't want to impose it. And I all the training sessions, I told them, you know, please invite me, I'll be there. I got special dispensation from the CAA to do it. Um, if you go out to the airport, you go out to the airport a little bit early if you can, because you're going to come across people. and uh, Or you're going to have a chance to go to the crew reporting center and just hang around. Uh, crew were used to seeing me uh, in, in the crew reporting center. I try to go regularly. Uh, some sometimes I was there every single week. Some of the times it took me a little bit uh, longer because uh, ultimately uh, you not only have to listen and be truthful, but you actually have to be seen. Um, I would take notes. I would get back uh, to, to some of the people. It's something that is difficult to do. And uh, whenever there is a contentious issue, uh, it's, it's even more difficult. Uh, and that's why I encouraged my team and certainly I was there that particularly during contentious times, we needed to be out at the airport and we needed to be uh, 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 in the crew buses and we needed to be uh, in, in places where we could be seen because ultimately we needed to show leadership even during the, during the difficult times. But anyways, key to innovation, listen, that's a great, great beginning. You won't run out of ideas. Uh, you referenced it just then, Alex, you know, during contentious times. I mean, I don't think there's been any leader of British Airways in its history that hasn't gone through some form of uh, conflict, if that's the right word to use, or problems with whether it's pilots or cabin crew or ground crew. How do you as a leader of a company square your responsibilities as the boss of a publicly listed company with your, it sounds a little bit kind of emotional, but your kind of heart as a human being for looking after people, because you had to make some tough decisions you would have done as a leadership team, but essentially the buck stops with you. And how, so how do you kind of deal with that as a, as a leader of a company? So I'll start out with an anecdote and maybe, maybe I can attempt to, to answer the question. In Click Air, uh, we grew to uh, 20 five Airbus 320. And it became increasingly clear that that was too much, uh, that we could end up merging with um, uh, Vueling and we needed to adjust our size. It was, fuel was $148 an hour. It, we were losing a huge amount of money. Shareholders said, we believe in the project, but this is too much. You need to do something. And I remember vividly on that second office of, of Click Air uh, outside of Barcelona Airport, um, telling all the pilots to come to the office. And the majority of the pilots came, only a few didn't come. And I remember being there with uh, Luis, who is the CEO of IG today. He was my CEO at that time. And with uh, Rafa, who's the COO at Iberia. And I remember talking to them face to face and telling them, guys, this is the situation. Uh, we, we, th this is how much money we're, we're losing. This is, uh, this is what we're facing. And we're extremely sorry, but we can't continue. Uh, we, we're going to have to make some adjustments. And you know, we want your help. Now, this was not a meeting with the union. This was a meeting with all the pilots. We wanted to look at them at their, in their faces. So as a consequence of that, the pilots themselves um, uh, reacted. They took some measures. We were able to 
uh, not take as many redundancies as we need to, but we, we had some redundancies. Guess what? Over the coming years, we rehired every single one of those people back and they remembered and they, they you know, they, I even left Welling and one of the pilots in, in when I went to visit Barcelona, uh, saw me and reminded me, he said, you, you, took, you told me to my face that I was gone and then you took me back. And I think that the biggest lesson that, that I got from that small scale experience, uh, yet extremely, was that you need to be human uh, throughout the whole process. The issue with a company like British Airways is that it's incredibly difficult to be human because, uh, well, you can't have a conversation like the three of us are having uh, right now, pause without less pressure, et cetera, because there are one million and one eyes that are looking at you. Uh, there are uh, people that are um, uh, passing on any internal email to the Daily Mail, that any video that you produce is on Sky News within a few minutes. Uh, uh, it's very difficult to have intimate uh, discussion, not intimate discussions, discussions in which you are trying to be as open as, as you can be. So to answer your question a little bit, the number one component, particularly when you're facing a really adverse situation that is going to potentially affect a lot of people, is to make sure that you are convinced that that situation is real, that there isn't anything um, fake about it that uh, you have really attempted to address the situation from every other possible way that you can, and that you've done it together with your closest te team around you. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did in MBA. Uh, uh, our teams, whenever we found ourselves in some of the difficult situations, we were together for hours, making sure that we were contemplating and looking at every single piece of data that would lead us to believe it were we were going to take the right decision or not. And once we made a decision, um, if it was a hard decision uh, that may have some consequences, we try to do the best that we can to treat people in the best way possible. Now, when, uh, you know, if I take that to the um, worst situation, I'd say, uh, which is when COVID hit us and we had to uh, restructure very, very significantly our, our workforce, uh, there were other forces in motion which made uh, the challenge uh, more difficult. And in this particular case, whilst the uh, pilot union from the very beginning um, uh, worked very, very, very closely with us, it wasn't easy working, but it was constructive working with the pilot from the beginning. Uh, the other two unions led by, by Unite uh, did not, and they chose a completely different avenue. And that created a series of barriers that did not allow us to probably be more human, be more personal, be more, um, uh, I would say, truthful, be more who we were when we were dealing with people. We went into a very um, uh, uh, well-defined process, uh, um, consultation process that lasted much longer than, than, than um, the statutory uh, period. But the end result, ultimately, was to put a lot of people into a position of making decisions about themselves that was really, really difficult. And we had a number of thousands of people that felt uh, quite pressured to uh, finish their aviation career before they would have liked to. And it was a consequence of the situation that we were, that we were in. Um, making those decisions is extremely hard. Yeah. Maintaining a human attitude, interacting with cabin crew at the airport and the crew reporting center when you're going through this, it's incredibly difficult, but it's the least thing that you can do. I've always said that, you know, 
it's difficult to make decisions. It's difficult to get money, raise money for investment, but there's something that is not difficult and that is to make yourself available and to speak. Um, when, uh, you know, thousands of people in BA, they wrote to me and I wrote back to them. Uh, yeah. uh, now, whenever there was an email campaign and everybody sent me exactly the same email that I'm sorry, I didn't answer those, but uh, many, many hundreds of people wrote to me and I wrote back because it was important that they heard back from me. It may not be an untenable, it may be an untenable position to do, but um, once again, if you, that's relatively easy, come back to people and try to be a little bit more personable. So it's not easy. It's it's not easy. I think what I find so fascinating about this kind of kind of situation that a, a leader of a company finds himself in is that, you know, as you've explained eloquently here, you're trying to do the right thing. But then, and I'm quoting from the Guardian here, you know, the, the leader of the Unite Union described the decision as heartless. You know, does that hurt? Or do you just think, well, that's the union that weren't as agreeable to working with us, and that's just their rhetoric for the press? Or do you actually take something like that quite personally? I, I, I can't take it personally. Uh, uh, everybody has a role to do. Yeah. Um, but in this particular case, it was disheartening. Uh, I pleaded, I wrote, spoke, texted, uh, Len McCluskey, the leader of the mm -hmm. union, on a number of occasions, asking him to please see the numbers. I want to show you the numbers. When you see the numbers, you'll understand that this is something that is really serious. Now, the pilots, we, we, we pleaded only once. They got together, San NDA, they looked at the numbers, they believed it. We, we started working. We, we came up with an initial agreement within weeks with the pilots. Uh, for whatever set of reasons, uh, and I will not judge them, uh, Unite said, uh, McCluskey told me in a number of occasions, he said, no, I don't want to see the numbers. Uh, you have to stop what you're doing. Uh, don't worry. Uh, the government will come and we'll give you money and we'll talk about it six, seven months down the line. And that's not, I, I thought it was acting incredibly irresponsible if I had done that. We would have ended up letting go many more people if we had done that, uh, because we'd have been in a significantly much worse financial situation. So what I, what I felt was not... Uh, I wasn't taking it personally. I just felt I wanted the union to represent their employees. I wanted the union to come to the table and sit down with us. I knew the unions had experience dealing with these sort of conflicts in other companies and other sectors, and they weren't sitting down with us. And that was disheartening. Every day that went by and the guys weren't sitting with us, it was absolutely terrible. So we just kept going. We kept sharing ideas, kept uh, sharing presentations, thousands of pages, hundreds of meetings that they didn't come to. Uh, it was more disheartening. I didn't take it personally, but it, I felt really, really bad for the people that were being represented by them. Um, they treated it as a conflict rather than as a crisis. It was a crisis. It was not a conflict. Well, you know, what's interesting is that I feel like, you know, you were, you headed up a national flag carrier, right? Like, and I feel like part of your job must have been more like, we're talking about unions here and um, government support part of your job was being a politician at times, basically, and, and, and a lot of ways other than you, you weren't an elected MP or something. But um, I, I feel like, how did you, I, I almost feel like you're, unlike anyone else we've spoken to, you've had to wade in, into like, uh, into issues of like, what is capitalism almost <laughs> like, like, and, you know, and, and labor and, and stuff like that in a way that I feel like most startups we speak, just don't have to deal with. They're mostly employing white collar, you know, uh, individuals. How did you, how did you think about managing those very national nationalized conversations? 
I, I was very comfortable with the following narrative, which I shared with with staff uh, uh, quite quite openly, and it's the fact that uh, post privatization, uh, British Airways was um, you know was an incredible company. Remember the the ads by Sachi and Sachi and the world's favorite airline and and and, and all of, all of the stuff. It was a it was an icon of of Britain in many respects. Um, it was not performing very well financially. Uh, so whoever the shareholders were at that time were not particularly having a, a fantastic time. Now, as time went by, uh, successive um, teams, management teams, they worked really hard to try to uh, reverse that. They really took uh, one guy in particular, uh, 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 my boss, Willie, when he arrived in MBA, that he began to do things that were not particularly pleasant, but they were actually addressing one of the three stakeholders that probably had not been listened to or been attended to, which was the investor, it was the shareholder. So Willie started a lot of different initiatives internally. And eventually uh, when I got to, to BA, the company was um, uh, going very much in the right direction. And ultimately uh, my years in BA, my, my, my four uh, full years that I've had in BA were the most profitable years in, in MBA's history. And of course that was not my doing, it was the doing of, of the team and all, all the work that had been done in the, year, in, the in the years prior to that. But there was a point probably into my first year in close discussions with, with uh, uh, at that time, my partner in crime at, at the beginning, Steve Gunning and I, um, uh, and, and the rest of the team, frankly, um, that we really thought we needed to move on to the next stage. And the next stage in balancing the scale of the stakeholders was the customer. And that meant uh, beginning to invest in the product. Uh, yes, there was a blip there with Buy On Board, uh, which became a, a national uh, tragedy, uh, according to, to, to some people. Uh, but to be, to be frank, you know, a standard product. Uh, what was important was business class in long haul and the catering in the lounges and the quality in the state of many of the lounges and the uh, quality of the uh, onboard amenity kits and, and uh, um, some of those uh, products. So we started a slow process to try to prove to the board that investing in the customer made a difference. And we progressively managed to do so and eventually got the support to, stand, to spend billions on aircraft, on new seats, um, uh, new launches, et cetera. And that was a huge success. So that was the beginning of having managed to get to 15% EBIT margins, uh, which was huge. Uh, you know, BA, uh, BA had been, uh, when, when, when BA was told by Willie that uh, uh, it needed to get to 10%, I, a lot of people have told me that uh, they, they said, you know, you must be absolutely out of your mind. We'll never get 10%. Well, here, here I was uh, reaching 15%. But now we really wanted to drive customer, the customer project. And I'm super happy to see that BA continues to um, uh, invest uh, on those uh, new airplanes with the new seats and new classes and the catering and everything else, which will really, really bring back uh, the customer service the, the angle. There is one third angle, which is incredibly important. And we began to work on it uh, on my last year, and that's the team. You have to balance all three, uh, uh, shareholders, customers, and uh, employees. And we started um, a program called 1BA, uh, uh, and and uh, my third year uh, put together by uh, another brilliant person, director of communica internal communications through Macmillan um, and the rest of the team fantastically. And we built this story around what had happened in BA. We made these videos and we made these uh, massive presentations in Twickenham Stadium that we had hundreds of people that came every time 
uh, for a morning or afternoon. And we really told the story. We were honest. We're trying to build together uh, uh, a new airline, an airline that internally we said we wanted to be the best airline in the world, period. That was, that was our ambition. We could be the best airline in the world. So back to your question. <clears throat> Ultimately, we need to acknowledge that uh, we as uh, people that work in private companies have a responsibility uh, to those three stakeholders. Um, there is one angle that uh, probably since the last few years, uh, another stakeholder um, that uh, it's been growing in importance and now it's 100% uh, another stakeholder and that's the environment. So everything that gets done today, nowadays, every single business case internally has an environmental impact, uh, uh, an emissions impact, et cetera. Uh, not just from the cost perspective, actually from a corporate responsibility perspective. So uh, balancing all of these is difficult. And uh, in a company like BA, uh, you're always going to find uh, uh, some contradictions, small contradictions here and there. But so long as you can get the majority of the people to come with you and to understand what you're fighting for and fighting for it, uh, it you know, it's fantastic. And I think it's, that's where BA is today. It's funny. It's, uh, that was actually my question. You kind of started answering it there. It's like, you know, how do you balance it, right? Like, I think that it's a very tough thing. I'm... I consider myself a huge environmentalist. My mother's a safari guide and a naturalist. I grew up, you know, going on whale watch trips. Um, I'm also a capitalist, and I recognize that there are competitive factors in a market that you can't decide to say, "Well, we're going to go all electric if no one else is going electric," and your cost base skyrockets, right? And but then you end up with activists and activists whose job it is to to poke the bear and to get you to move. And I understand that and I respect that. Um, but sometimes the capitalist part of me rolls my eyes and goes, "You have no idea the the practical things that you have to deal with to to make the you know the business run." And I think it's it's an, you're impossibly pulled in a bunch of different directions. And uh, you know maybe I'm um, you know. Uh, asking this question, you know, again, you, you addressed a lot of it, but I just feel like it's got to be an impossible thing being pulled in those different directions. I feel like you kind of answered it there at the, at the end. It's like what the majority, if you can get the majority to go along with it. But yeah, if there's, if you have any more insight about how you balance being pulled in so many different directions, I think, you know, it's just incredibly interesting. Well, you have to come to terms that you cannot do it every minute of every day. Uh, uh, you know, we're used to the here and now. And often uh, questions that uh, uh, engineers or airport staff or crew would ask me is, you know, how come we're doing this or that? That seems to provide an imbalance to, to that balance that you talk about. And yes, uh, there would be situations in which you really you just can't avoid. You have to take a look at the bigger picture all along. Uh, and you have to feel comfortable that you're working together with the rest of the team towards a set of goals that are more balanced. And I think that that's what we attempted to do. But it's not something that you achieve in, in welling, we could probably do it in a few months. We were there. But in a company like BA, uh, it will take many years because they're, it's very well settled. Uh, uh, and you want as many people to come with you on that journey. And there's a lot of contracts and there's a lot of systems and there's a lot of uh, barriers. And you have to go through each and every one of those one at a time, uh, um, building them uh, little by little. So it's not something that you can do overnight but you got to be convinced that it's the right thing to do and you got to make sure that it's present in your business plans every year in your results and the way that you measure your success in the way that you reward people in the way that you recognize people uh, it has to be present all across okay so we're coming uh, close to the end of this week's episode alex so one more from me and then david's got one a future gazing one from him it's 
possibly like asking you to pick your favorite child. Um, do you have a favorite of the airlines that you've worked for? Um, I always joke that if you, if I were to uh, rip my shirt off, you would see a, a Superman uh, shirt with the clicker logo uh, in it. Okay. Um, I think that there's, uh, you know, there was a, a very subdued, um, I'm not even sure if he noticed it uh, or not moment uh, when I left. Um, when I left, I had a bunch of aircraft uh, from my history because I got to take them with me. You know, I got to have a, uh, an aircraft from each one of the... Uh, but one of the aircraft I had was one that uh, a lessor gave us at the very beginning of Click Air. And it's a huge Airbus 320. I mean, like really big, like big, 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 about a meter long. And it had the original... Um, sparky, shiny uh, color scheme of, of Click Air. And I remember holding it in my arms, you know, and thinking, well, I can't possibly take this home. My wife will kill me. Um, so I walked it over uh, to Luisa's desk. Luisa is the CEO of, of, of IAG. Uh, he was, uh, uh, you know, the, the, one of the first employees in Click Air. In fact, I think he was 001. And I gave it to him uh, uh, together with uh, a lanyard from Click Air, and uh, maybe there was something else. And, you know, it was kind of a, a, a handover of saying, Luis, uh, this is what you and I started. Uh, and, and now you're CEO of IAG. Make sure that this, this stuff that we started uh, really has a fantastic end. So I think that um, I, I feel extremely, extremely close to the Boiling brand, really, really, really close. I feel incredibly close to the BA brand because it's been my brand, my home, my passion my my project my life uh, for the last five years but if you force me to choose one i gotta say well it was the one that i created uh together with a fantastic group of people and that would be clicker i'll uh prevent uh i'll stop myself from asking from your to rate your actual children now not just uh <laughs> <laughs> um the the fun question um you know that i kind of want to ask is about the future and really thinking about you know, we, there's a lot of you know stuff happening here. You know, a bunch of air taxis have, have gone uh, public. Uh, you're seeing, uh, you know, networks pop up like Blade, who we've interviewed to, uh, you know, really uh, provide a network for those air taxis. You've got other players like Wheels Up and Surf Air that are doing kind of next generation, um, you know, small airport privates and, you know, uh, a private um, uh, aviation. Uh, you know, and I think of even like Arrow, who's flying Mykonos to Ibiza flights at this point. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. And, you know, I, I feel like we're about to enter, you know, a next, um, uh, you know, phase here of a of truly big innovation that I, I feel like is almost like a, a TWA era. Um, wh what are you most excited about? So um, here's uh, where my dual personality kicks in. Uh, my uh, sort of uh, rational uh, manager um, of an airline, CEO of an airline, having seen uh, the different difficulties in certifying technology and Wi-Fi and everything else, uh, tells me that we need to be cautious with the expectations we have about the rollout of all of these technologies. Um, however, I am an airline industry geek. And I am a positive thinker and I am super excited about a number of technologies that are coming through and not just the ones that you've mentioned, but hydrogen uh, based propulsion systems and, and all kinds of uh, different startups around the world that are uh, testing new ways to get us from here to there. And by the way, the majority 
absolutely thinking about sustainability in that process. And I think that um, whatever barriers uh, there may be in terms of certification, in terms of adoption, in terms of investment, I'm pretty sure that sustainability will be a bigger barrier and it will sorry, a bigger driver. It will be a bigger enabler. So I wouldn't tell you which one, uh, I, I wouldn't comment uh, on, on, on which one is going to go first or it looks more promising. I think that all of these different projects that are, 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 are taking place at the moment all deserve uh, attention. Uh, I've been invited to participate in a couple. I'm thinking about it. It's interesting. Uh, you know, there's multiple uh, kinds of angles that, that, that one can support some of these projects, but we must support aviation. There is nothing wrong with traveling. Absolutely nothing wrong with traveling. In fact, traveling makes us richer. The whole world becomes richer that way. But we have to be thinking that in the future, we must travel in a sustainable way. And everything that we do from now on in our lives will have that as the most important angle of technology. So uh, if you push me, I'll tell you those projects that particularly pay attention to how we can achieve sustainability earlier. Those are really, really exciting, probably more exciting than others. Okay. A thoroughly excellent chat, Alex Cruz. Thank you so much for joining us on How I Got Here this week. We really appreciate your time. Great. Thank you. It was a real pleasure to be with you. Okay, right. If this is your first uh, hearing of an episode of How I Got Here, you can subscribe to this episode and all future episodes and the 60-odd that we've published beforehand by subscribing on Apple, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all the usual places. Go on there, give us a review, but uh, please come back next week for another episode. So on behalf of David and I, uh, a very warm thank you to Alex Cruz again for joining us. And thank you very much to everybody for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.